All right, everybody, Josh Smith here, live at Flat Five, my studio, and today I'm talking to one of my most favorite guitar players in the entire world, a uh, huge inspiration, and one of the nicest dudes, Adam Rogers. Uh, if you're not familiar with Adam, he's just a motherfucker on the guitar, and he's a great dude. He's, he's done it all. He's been a sideman with some of the biggest names in jazz. He's been in a band that's been a real band that stayed together for years and been on a label. He's been a session guy, and he's just an unbelievable musician. And he played with Michael Brecker, which is good enough for me on any levels. So, Adam, thank you so much for being here, dude. I'm a huge fan. Thanks, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. So I was curious. I was, of course, doing my due diligence, and I read that you, your parents were musicians. Is that correct? They were, and they still are. They still are. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, obviously, that is that 100% directly responsible for you going this way in your life? I, you know, I'm not sure. It certainly was a, an important part of my um, getting involved in music. Um, they weren't only musicians. They were, if I had to kind of use one descriptor to describe their histories in the entertainment business they were like broadway singer dancer musicians okay. so my dad um who's from cleveland uh started out studying tap dancing uh he studied drums with one of the great drum pedagogues of the 20th century charlie wilcoxon who uh wrote a lot of books that a lot of people have worked out of, of Philly Joe Jones among them um, and was sort of, you know, in both of them in were sort of in that continuum of 20th century musical performers who learned how to play instruments and learn how to sing and dance. Uh, so my dad played piano and sang and danced and played drums, tap danced. Um, my mom studied ballet, uh, was an opera singer and a Broadway performer, and they were both in uh, Broadway shows. My father was in the original production of Oklahoma in the 40s here in New York City. Wow. My mom was in Hello, Dolly, Once Upon a Mattress, you know, and they both um, ended up in different places uh, in the business. My mom eventually uh, went into the food business and my dad kind of parlayed all of his work in the New York uh, theater world and industrial shows into directing television out in L.A. in the 70s. Wow. Um, so, but there was music in my house like all day long when I was growing up. There was my, my father's drum set was always set up. He was always playing the piano uh, and singing. My mother, the same thing. All of their friends, you know, it was uh, would would kind of music was just a part of my upbringing in a very um, kind of informal way, you know, like I heard it all. And my dad showed me stuff on the piano and drums when I was a little kid. Um, when I was young, I was always really, really excited to hear music and especially like see my parents when they would play music around me. I was just fascinated with it. That's so, amazing, man. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how multi-talented and faceted people from that generation were. I was watching Mel Brooks' yeah. documentary, and he sits down and plays drums, 
He yeah. sits down and plays piano and sings. And of course, he's like the funniest guy in the history of the world. And it's yeah. like, you know, they, they just were so open to all things creative at that time and just wanted to be great. Yeah. Yeah. My dad, um, I, I don't know what the exact situation was, but he worked with Sammy Davis Jr. in the early 50s. I think they might have been on like the same bill at a club and they became friends. And Sammy is one of the great examples, as I'm sure you know, of that thing. Like just the just the talent was just unbelievable. Dancing, yeah. singing, killing drummer could just do anything, you know? Um, so, I mean, growing up in a situation, I mean, in my particular situation, my folks kind of coming out of that scene was, you know, I'm sure, I mean, it had a lot to do with my interest in music, what I ended up getting into eventually that, that kind of introduced me to the guitar was very different the, from where they were coming from. Um, but, uh, and what was that? What, what put the guitar in your hands? Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> of course. Period. And today, rest in peace, Jimi Hendrix. Today's the anniversary. So. Yeah. Yes, sir. That's right. Wow. Yeah. I forgot. How could I yeah. forget? Um, you know, I mean, I started, as I alluded to before, I started playing instruments when I was really young. Like my dad showed me things on the piano uh, and drums. And then I, I, took private piano lessons. I really didn't want to, but I wanted a skateboard. And my father said, I'll get you a skateboard, but you have to take piano lessons. So <laughs> I wasn't I've been into there. I, I know that drill. <laughs> I later got really into the piano once I started learning how to play jazz because I was obsessed with like McCoy Tyner and shit, you know. Um, but I got into the guitar uh, the, a friend of mine in in elementary school played a little guitar and he showed me some things on like the school acoustic guitar when I was growing up here in New York. Um, like I th he showed me Over the Hills and Far Away, <laughs> Roundabout, which was a, a nice... Wow! <laughs> at least the intro. And I think Stairway to Heaven and maybe the the groove to um whole lot of love because at that point i was just into like zeppelin and p-funk that was my that was my <laughs> listening style because um, uh in those days in this in the mid-70s in new york city there was music you know i should also add this when i was growing up in manhattan like music was just playing on the street everywhere and whatever the hits were uh, you just heard them all the time. And P-Funk, like Flashlight and One Nation Under a Groove, that period of P-Funk was, they were big hits on the radio. So me and my friend were just obsessed with 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 P-Funk and Zeppelin. Anyway, and then there was this guy in my high school. It's coming clear to me, man. P-Funk and Ze is very coming clear to me now. <laughs> the, yeah. puzzle, the Adam Rogers puzzle. <laughs> yeah, that's that was a big, an important part of it. Um, and so, and there was a guy in my, I, this is probably a, not an, un, an atypical story. There was a, a kid who was in high school, um, in the school that I was in when I was in middle school, who was like in the high school band. He went on to, to do a lot of stuff in the business. And as I remember it, he played me a Hendrix record. 
And I can't remember what it was, but in those days, you know, we're talking like 1976, there weren't that many Hendrix recordings available, right? Like there were the, mm. the three studio records, Band of Gypsies, and I think those two, you know, Crash Landing and Midnight Lightning, which right. are sort of strange recordings. Um, right. Whatever it was, he played me a Hendrix record and I flipped the fuck out. I remember, I just, I didn't, it was like something hit me, man. The energy, the sound of the music, his playing, just this, 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 amazing force you know and i went man i gotta try to figure out how to do that and all i did from that point on until i kind of started to get into trying to learn how to play traditional jazz music was play hendrix tunes i took every record i had and brought them to the the bookstore uh next to my house and just gave them every record i had except hendrix records and I it was a stupid ass thing to do because I all my Hendrix records, whatever I had, I'm sorry, all my Led Zeppelin records and other records, I had a lot of records at that point. I just gave them all away. I was like, I'm just dealing with Hendrix at this point. And I would just sit there and try to figure out how to um, play Hendrix tunes and solos. And actually, as a as a at least a current Los Angelino, I don't know if you're originally from Los Angeles, are you? No, you're not. No, I'm from Florida. Right, right, right. I somehow knew that. But my dad, as I said, was directing TV in LA in the 70s. So I would spend the summers out there with him. And he lived in the Palisades when he first, yeah, yeah. second place he had in LA uh, was in the Palisades. And so I took lessons with this dude at this guitar store in Pacific Palisades named Steve, like this kind of surfer guy who played really well. He played he could play jazz, as I remember his his thing in life was that he would he was doing this these endless very like jazz guitar variations on the Munsters theme. <laughs> Every week he'd come in and go, hey man, check it out. He wore like, you know, like maybe you know the type Vans shorts, sandals, yeah. my man, and he'd say, check this out. You know, I got a new series of very, and he could really play. But he kind of saw where I was coming from and he showed me, I think he showed me how to play Little Wing. And then he showed me these things like um, Valdez in the country. Remember Ronnie wow. Laws? It was like, and yeah, Mr. Magic absolutely. was like, you know, Grover. Abs absolutely, Mr. Magic, yeah. Right. So he kind of hit me, he started to hit me to something that I wasn't yet um, into myself, but he, he helped me, you know, he showed like a really good kind of beginner guitar teacher, he kind of saw where I was, what I was interested in. And he showed me things that I was, that made me enthusiastic. You know, it was like, oh, that's how you play Little Wing, you know, or, or Hey Joe or something, you know, I, I think I had figured out a lot on my own. But at that point, I didn't know what the note, I didn't even know what the strings were called. You know, it was just like, I oh, just wow. played ear and, and, just listen to Hendrix records all day long. So uh, that's how so, I got into So was that the, the beginning of jazz? I'm, I'm assuming your parents probably listened to jazz, though, in the house. But was that kind of where you... No, I wasn't into it at all. I mean, I heard it all the time, but it was like, I didn't really even think about it. You know, I was into whatever was happening at the time. You know, I was into... Mm. I mean, really young, my musical... My, the What I was really into were... were uh, the Beatles, 
The Temptations, The Four Tops, and Curtis Mayfield. Those were my, I had these records like Superfly when I was about seven. I used to listen to that record over and over and over again. And I would look at the scenes from the movie on the record cover, like, wow. Uh, and just listen to that record constantly. And then there's this great Four Tops record called Keeper of the Castle. One of those, it was a, a beautifully recorded, I think it's, I can't remember the lay, ABC Paramount. Early it's after 70s, they left, yeah. Yeah, early 70s, LA, Wilton Felder on bass, um, mm. all the top cats I later learned. Actually, recently I found the record. Um, great tunes, incredible production, you know, that strings and horns and, and incredible pocket. Um, those records and the temptations uh theme from shaft i was i heard of uh that tune at a party with my parents when it came out and i had never heard a wah-wah guitar before and i went bananas wow <clears throat> and kept listening to it over and over again because the sound flipped me out so i say all that to just say that from when i was a little kid i was i was super into records that i later or you know in in hindsight realize that had like this you know amazing production value like the sounds yeah. of records from that time really flipped me out and just you know funk always was something that that i just would go nuts over you know um superfly yeah. i remember the first time i heard david bowie fame oh yeah and I just, I was in LA in Pacific Palisades and somebody played it, it was on the radio. Somebody had the radio going, I just went bananas, man. Something about like a funk groove um, just freaked me out. And then- Oh yeah, with know, that production and those pop sensibilities, but that totally. groove, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And the Beatles and, you know, from when I was very, very young, you know, those, those records that are still, uh, as interesting to me now as they were when I was four, which you know, <laughs> says a lot, I think about. I gotta say though, it's pretty, pretty awesome. You know that as a seven-year-old, you get Superfly, and you're looking at the fold all the time, and you're that into Curtis Mayfield. I don't know. That was just my thing, you know. But as I said in New York, you know, those on the street, uh, you've heard music all the time like coming out of stores. Everybody had radios, you know, so whatever was on the radio, you heard. Yeah. Um, and, and those records just knocked me out. Keeper of the Castle, that Four Tops record. I mean, I, I, it's funny because I found it in a record store not that long ago. And I, man, I mean, the tunes, they're still just such great tunes. Four Tops, production. man. Unreal. Uh, Le oh, Levi Stubbs, one of the greatest oh, singers of all time. Oh, like, not even a question. Yeah. yeah. So, man, I saw all that to just say that, you know, my parents had, were playing, my, my dad had Basie records and, and he had played with Hank Jones, jazz pianist Hank Jones, um, and was all into Bill Evans and Miles records. But when I was a kid, I just didn't, that's not really what I was hearing. I was hmm. hearing whatever was happening in, in different areas of pop music. And it was, I mean, all of that information from when I was young being exposed to jazz music um, probably had a big effect on my later appreciation and, and obsession with it. So then what was the first jazz thing that just flipped the switch for you and you were like, I need to learn this? 
Well, it was sort of a series of things. Um, I heard Breezin, right? <laughs> yeah, Which just, yeah. I didn't know what was happening, but I was just like, George Benson, what yeah, happened? Of and then somebody at a, at, in the, at a rock gig somewhere in New York, I think it was the Peppermint Lounge, gave me a record of the saxophonist Arthur Blythe. Um, it was a promotional 45. Arthur Blythe, if you did, he's a he's a he's from Los Angeles. He passed sadly a couple of years ago. Great alto saxophonist, um, and he had a deal on Columbia at that point, and he made a really interesting record. A couple of them. Uh, this one was called Illusions, and on one side it had sort of a straight aheadish approach, you know, very much kind of uh, of the time, not like a you know a, a rehashed bebop thing or anything and on the yeah. other side of the record was this band with james blood ulmer guitarist james blood ulmer tuba cello drums and alto saxophone and it was like funk but just wow. you know blood ulmer playing the way he plays and this record tripped me out man it was like blood kind of had like this very hendrix influence uh, approach but i think he played a an L5 or a Birdland or something with a hollow body sound. And something about that and having heard Benson got me thinking differently uh, about music. And then I had Headhunters, which I used to listen to all the time. I didn't really understand what was going on, but I could sort of get into it through the funk, you know, uh, part of the music. And then right. my father got Heavy Weather, Weather Report, because he heard Birdland on the radio. And he said, man, you got to check out this bass player. My father told me this, right? And I was like... How amazing. First, the fact that he heard it on the radio. He heard it on I, like, imagine that happening today, you know, oh, like not possible. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. if you remember KKGO, or is it still there? The no, it was I don't Los know. Angeles, you know, not smooth jazz didn't really exist, you know, like popular jazz. Yeah. Kinda. And so he got heavy weather. And then I heard Jocko's solo on Havona you know like everybody i had never heard bass played that way and then we went to see weather report at the beacon a couple times me and my pops after mr gone came out and after was it night passage or 8 30 and wow. that was something else man because you know as you may know whether their their thing was almost like a rock concert you know they had oh, yeah. slides projected and jocko would run around the stage and you know for a young nerd like myself i could sort of relate to the performative aspect and then jocko would play third stone from the sun you know which that was like forget it he he had me and so i i got really into weather report um and i'm sorry this is such a long description but i love it man please no no i love it i love this is this is why i'm doing this i want to hear my friend's journey because it's the most fascinating thing to me how you end up finding your voice and being, because that's the best thing about being a musician is finding your lane and your thing. And the journey is the, is the process. That's how you get there. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, at this time, I had a friend, uh, like one of my, my best buddies, we used to hang all the time, who played alto saxophone. And he studied with the father of one of my oldest friends and one of my most important uh, musical collaborators, drummer Ben Porowski, 
And Ben and I um, co-led among with the three, sometimes two, sometimes three other guys, uh, the band Lost Tribe. Right. Um, and Ben's dad, Frank, is a great saxophonist and clarinetist. And my friend Tovey studied with him. And all Tovey did, this cat was so funny, was play bird solos. I don't even think he knew that bird improvised them. He just would hit the only <laughs> thing he did was play bird solos. And he would vibe me out almost like an old jazz musician that, oh, you're playing that rock shit, you know, you need to check this out. And I would argue with him because I thought it was, I didn't understand the music and I would go over and he'd make me try to, he'd, I'd try to play like kind of Freddie Green behind him playing bird mm -hmm. solos, but all I knew were bar chords. So it was, you know, just, but yeah. from him playing these records for me, uh, the Bird Savoy Sessions and yeah, yeah, Miles yeah. Round Midnight and Milestones and Train Giant Steps, I started to become really interested in that era of jazz music. Like I could hear this incredibly high level of sophistication and extraordinary virtuosity that I didn't understand at all, but I could hear that it was happening, right? Like it mm -hmm. sounded just unbelievable. It's, it's strange because I've thought about this, this was in the early 1980s probably, and <clears throat> Bird records at that point were close to 40 years old, I guess, and they sounded like old records because of the way they were recorded. But once I started to get into a little bit into the mechanics of what was happening, it sounded like music from the future because it was so yeah. much more sophisticated than anything I understood, right? Yeah. As, as advanced as Hendrix was for somebody, you know, in the kind of quote unquote popular realm. And as much as you can hear him trying to push into these other realms by, you know, things where he would use ninths and, 13th and shit yeah 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 this was something and i and so i was like i gotta try to figure out what's happening here and that's when i started studying jazz music i started taking lessons with uh great jazz guitarists and i just would listen i had the bird savoy sessions miles round midnight milestones <laughs> train giant steps and wes smoking at the half note which I stole from my friend. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, as you, I don't know if you're old enough to be in the same, by the, you're younger than I am, but in those days, it, weren't like, it wasn't like we were poor, where everybody was sort of middle class. But to True. get a record was like six bucks, right? Uh -huh. So it, nobody had any money, so we would, you know, figure out how to, okay, well, you know, what record am I going to buy this week? You know, it was like an investment. Uh -huh. The West right. record, because it was a double record set, I, I, it was too much money for me to go to the record store and buy, so I stole it from my man who was always trying to get it back, which is just, you know, in 2020, it sounds so funny because it's like you yeah. press a mouse click and there's every record ever. So, well, it's part of the reason that, that we value music much higher than the new generation. I mean, I was talking to my son about this recently he'll never own a piece of music in his life or have a record collection he can listen to anything he wants anytime but he doesn't no. have that that latch that feeling of waiting in line to buy a record waiting for it to come out and getting it that day and and, and it doesn't bother him because he doesn't know what he's missing but it, they can't relate you know yeah, and it's just that's the way it is you know from different eras 
I'm glad that I have that, had that experience, you know, in my formative years. It's led me to like a less, listening to music online is never something that I really got into that much. You know, it's just, there's something about that. I guess it shouldn't be. It's ultimately, it's just the substance that matters, but that interaction and finding something even today, you know, get having kind of had a resurgence in my own life with uh, getting into a resurgence of vinyl enthusiasm. It wasn't vinyl enthusiasm in the late seventies. That was all there was that eight tracks. (laughs) Right. Right. you know, now, I mean, going to a record store and like finding some weird record, you know, like that Chet Atkins record, I texted yeah. you a picture. Yeah. I found yeah. that in a bin in rural Pennsylvania last week when I was out, you know, having a few days of respite. I never heard that <laughs> record. I never would have known to find that record. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's an amazing record. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, the universe bestowed this just bananas classic record on me man i love that you know well there's something special about i mean we all love when our friends and our influences hip us to shit but there's something special about when you just walk straight into something without being told about it i remember being in a record store as a kid and seeing that ray charles album where he plays saxophone on the front and i bought this record and i i took it home and he, he only plays saxophone on two songs but it was like, I, I felt like I had a secret record that nobody knew about, you know, as a kid. And th- yeah. those moments still, I, I remember the moments like that of finding records. It was like, nobody told me about this. I just found it, you know. I have these these bootleg Hendrix records, which I'm sure you can find. Yeah. Um, on, I mean, versions of them um, digitally. But there used to be this store that just had bootleg records. And I have these, they had plain white covers on them and like this weird copied insert. And man, I have these Hendrix records. I've never heard them anywhere else. Like some of the baddest Hendrix you've ever heard. Um, And, you know, of course you could sort of have that interaction with, you know, I guess with the internet, but somehow it's not as interesting to me. And I just don't discover things in the same way. Anyway. um, I'm with you. So, but, so I had, the, you know, those records, Bird Savoy, Miles Round Midnight Milestones, Train Giant Steps, and uh, Wes Smoking at the Half Note, and the live stuff from the Lighthouse with Johnny Griffin. Oh, yeah. Uh, it was a double record set. Um, I think it's from the Lighthouse, or maybe another club in Los Angeles. Um, I'm not sure. I just listened to those records over and over and over and over again, and tried to figure out what was happening um i didn't know how to read at all i used to have a a a great jazz guitar teacher i mean he was a great guitarist the guy who played on tons of sessions and stuff in the early 60s um, named howie collins who used to wear me out about how you can't read you can't play you sad motherfucker you know it's like a real kind of crotchety old jazz player and I couldn't read on the guitar. I, I had studied classical piano. Like I knew how to, what notes and durations and clefts were, but on the guitar, it was like, I couldn't figure out how to do it. I went out to visit my dad in LA one summer. This is probably like maybe 80 or something. And I studied with this guy. I wanted to take guitar lessons while I was visiting him for the couple months I was out there. 
and we found this dude. I don't know how we found him named Tony Baruso at GIT. <laughs> okay. Um, who was a, a real super influenced by Pat Martino. It was actually when Pat Martino was teaching at GIT. I think he was recovering from the, the um, neurological right. issue that he had with the, whatever it was. Um, and he was around. And this guy, Tony, was a great teacher. And he laid out a couple of really, really important sort of theoretical um, programs for me that uh, really helped me understand what was happening in jazz music. Um, and I, I really credit him exclusively for hipping me to this shit that I just didn't understand. And he helped me understand it, you know, of like chord substitutions and chords with upper extensions and right. modes and, and altering things. And it, it helped me to start to understand what was happening. And somehow when I, I realized that I, if I learned how to read, I could learn more music. And it was like, I taught myself how to read like in minutes. It was so, I was always, <laughs> as a student, if I didn't see a goal that I wanted, I was like, I couldn't do anything. I was a terrible student in high school as a result, because yeah. it was like, why am I studying this? If I didn't understand that there was something at the end of a sort of course of study that I wanted, it was like, what am I doing, you know? So as soon it makes as sense to me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was it made my, uh, my schooling life prior to college kind of difficult, but Oh, I know the One, feeling, man. I it was yeah. how little can I do to get a B was my right. whole whole thing, no matter what. Yeah. I don't even know if I had it that clearly. I was just like, well, I'm not <laughs> going to do this. Um, but once I I understood that I could like acquire more information if I learned how to read, I learned how to read pretty quickly, and then I would just try to play bird solos out of the Omni book. <laughs> yeah, I figured that was like the instruction manual, you know. So I would just try to learn how to play them and play them along with the record and then listening to all this music. And it was the, the concept of what was happening or the concepts of, you know, sort of what was under the hood in traditional jazz music that I was hearing and was so excited about started to sort of reveal themselves themselves to me. Yeah. And uh, from that point, all I did was just, you know, I got rid of all my, solid body well i had a strat i sold that i had a les paul the paul from the <laughs> yeah which was a nice box but it wasn't a hollow body so i got rid of that and i got this hagstrom dequisto hollow hollow body that i just and i was so into west i would transcribe west solos i played with my thumb for mm. oh, like for two years that's all i would wow. do um anyway that's the long-winded explanation of what happened there. Uh, all right. Well, before we get into the 10 questions, I got, I had a couple just random questions about, uh, I, I, about your right hand, man, uh, because it's, it's incredible to me the way that you pick. And I wonder, you just said you played with your thumb for two years. And so now it's like, when did you arrive at your economical way with the right hand that you use now? I really don't remember, man. You know, my, my sort of course of study, if you will, aside from when I, 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 
as you may or may not know, when I went to college, I went to college for classical guitar. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah, that was the only like sort of methodical course of study I did in in music. Everything else was sort of taking things from different places, and um, so the great thing about playing with trying to imitate Wes's sound when I was first learning and trying to play these solos that I couldn't really play with my thumb, like try to play bird solos. Right. Um, that it, it, it instilled in me a certain kind of sound on the instrument because I always wanted to try to just get Wes's sound because it was so fat. Yeah. So when I realized that there were things that I wanted to do on the guitar that playing with the thumb wouldn't allow like certain, you know, dexterous um, yeah. kind of approaches, uh, I started playing with the pick. But I think, you know, this, the, I always had that thick sound in my head. So that was what I was going for, even with a pick. And I honestly, Josh, I have no idea how I put together whatever it is <laughs> that I do. I don't know, you know, nobody really told me anything as far yeah. as playing guitar. So I just figured out, and I mean, I don't mean this to come off as like a self-aggrandizing, like I came up with this great approach. I don't know what I did, you know, I just... No, but it's amazing. I mean, obviously the classical in college had, had some influence because it's all the, you know, every piece of the pie comes together to form. So like for me, I played only with a pick with my hand anchored down on the pick guard until I heard Danny Gatton. And then overnight I changed into hybrid picking everything. And then right. that made me who I am now, basically, the mix of that technique with whatever knowledge I have and my blues background. So it's like those, all those things ended up making you what you are, you know. But it, yeah, when I watch you play, though, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, the, ec the economy in your right hand. It, it freaks me out. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, still, you know, sometimes I wish I had more of sort of a, uh, an objective methodology to refer to because sometimes my technique will sort of change and I'll think well what was I doing 15 years ago I don't even know you know it's like I hope you know it changes for reasons of uh, you know coming from sort of overarching musical prerogatives I think you know I start to hear things differently and but you know I, I and the classical thing of course you know technically it helped my left hand a lot, but you know, the, the, the classical technique has absolutely nothing to do with picking. As a matter of fact, sure. the fact that I, I started out and played so much with a pick and through college was performing a lot on electric guitar, like I was playing on the street all the time and playing in clubs. It was an impediment to my classical <laughs> technique because my muscles were more sort of I think formed around playing with a pick. So there were certain things like with your middle and index finger, the really fast things that classical players do that I yeah. couldn't, you know, I like my picking muscles would sort of hamper those though, that technique. But one of the things that was, I mean, the, the, the things you learn about, you know, sound creation or sound production when playing classical guitar, kind of puts you a little bit more in the realm of like trumpet players and bowed instrument players, which okay, is something that yeah. I am so happy that, that I did because um, it helped with just an overall concept of sound and also having a practice regimen. Um, the, 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 the way that you practice classical music, it's much easier to sort of objectify 
chunks of things to do when you're playing classical music, right? It's not like you, everybody's trying to learn these pieces that a lot of people have played. There's sort of a clear, a, a clearer path to, to sure. acquiring a, a goal. Um, so I think that the practice, how to practice things that I learned playing classical music were very helpful to me as an improvising musician. And then That's a lot cool. of the, and also the things that you learn, like, you know, if you, like when you play scales with classical guitar, you play them with the same scales with your middle and index finger, with your middle and your middle and third finger, with your index, and you do the same things with as many variations as possible. That kind of bled into how I practice everything else. Like if you practice one thing this way, then practice that same thing this way you know, alternate picking, all downstrokes, you know, sweet right. picking, all, you know, so it helped me create, you know, a bit of a, a I think a, a good way of, of practicing things. And as a result, I developed some way of picking that, you know, strange. And, I, you know, I pick with my, my pinky rests on the pick guard when I play, mm. which is I later realized is like Benson, but I didn't know he did that. I don't know how I started doing that. It was just the, the primary thing, and I think the most instructive thing from, from that process that I went through, and I think from every, the process that you described and from everybody's process, is that you figure out a way to play music that helps you play music the way you think it should sound, right? Like, it doesn't mm -hmm. fucking matter how you do it, you know? Right. One of the beautiful things about guitar, electric guitar, um, to me, and one of the challenging things about teaching it is it doesn't have the same basic structural pedagogy as other instruments, right? You talk to any pianist, they all went da 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 They still do. Doesn't matter if you're talking yeah. about, you know, Brad Meldow or classical painting. You have these basic... Who on the guitar does the... Like, if you don't study classical guitar, everybody has this you know, unusual path to, to discovering what they discover on, on our instrument, like let's say the electric guitar, which to me is the very reason you end up with a Hendrix, a West Montgomery, a Van Halen, you know, people who created something sort of outside of any, you know, uh, uh, previously accepted pedagogy. Of course, when you try to teach people who are young and they don't have a basic structural understanding and that they've maybe gone a certain way or gone a, a you know, a, a certain amount without good technique, sometimes you can really run into problems because people don't have that, that sort of basic quote unquote sound production thing that works. It's something that I've, as a teacher, have had to kind of address a lot and try to help people with well it is amazing how the electric guitar is relatively young in terms of our instruments here and so it was very much a blank slate when you hear charlie christian come on the scene it's like he really was unlike anything ever came before him you know he had to invent that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's amazing there's a, there's a great um interview somewhere i can't remember where i read it with les paul who knew charlie christian because les was already quite well known in the 30s and he talks about how charlie because even today when i listen to charlie christian i'm just like where in the world 
did you come up with that? You know, and yeah. Les Paul talks about this thing that's, that's sort of a beautiful discourse on the concept of regionality that doesn't really exist anymore because we all see the same things, whether you're in, you know, Beijing yeah. or San Francisco or that Charlie Christian, because of, if, if I, I think I'm remembering this correctly, because he grew up in Oklahoma, he heard like Bob Wills, Texas Playboys and mm -hmm. bluegrass music where guys were playing guitar with a lot of facility. They weren't yeah. playing jazz music, but they were playing, you know, like badass pickers. And then he heard Lester Young on the radio with Basie broadcasts. And not to say that that's the 100% the reason of how he was able to form this, you know, completely unprecedented style on this new instrument. But Les Paul talks about that, like, you know, he heard virtuosic guitar playing and maybe heard Django and Eddie Lang, too. I don't know. And, and T-Bone Walker, too. There was an interesting thing. They would run into each other in Texas. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So he had these this confluence of, of influences that may have been, or not may have been, were definitely very different than what somebody growing up in New York would have heard, you know? And as a result, maybe, you know, contributed to sparking the inspiration to, you know, create this shit on, on the instrument that was just, you know, to this day is just extraordinary to me. Well, and then because of the, technical aspect of the instrument it literally evolved in minutes where other things take decades to evolve so it's like in five years you can end up going from you know charlie christian to bb king and then another five years you can have eric clapton and Jimi hendrix and it's like in a blink of an eye yeah i mean it's sort of unbelievable in a way reflects the the exponential technological progress of the 20th century you know it's like as soon as the doors are open to one thing then these other things flow i mean the whole history of jazz music has sort of happened in obviously started way before you know its, it's roots but in a hundred years it's sort of run the course in a way melodically and harmonically that it took classical music 500 years to you know and yeah. part of that to do with Technology, communication, you know, the fact that, I mean, radio, Jesus, you know, that's that yeah. compared to a hundred years before. I mean, we think about, you know, if you think about 2020 to 1920, think about 1920 to 1820, man. I mean, that's, oh, like, yeah. you know, well, think, was, think about when Louis Armstrong or Buddy Bolden and these guys were starting to improvise, how long it actually took for someone on the West Coast or something to even hear that that's a thing. You know, yep. yeah, yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. Anyway, all right, let's get into our ten questions. You may need a guitar for the, this this part. Um, okay. The first one is, and we talked about some of this, but I ask everybody: when you were first learning and playing, so I'm I, I'm probably already sure what it is, but what was the first thing that you actually learned that when you got it under your fingers, it was like that's it, I'm hooked, I'll be a guitar player for the rest of my life. It was, you know, the first things I learned interested me in the, made me interested in the instrument, like the over the hills and far away, you know, these things that were, you know, very idiomatically guitaristic things. I was like, wow, that's super cool. Uh, I don't remember what the first thing, it was something of Hendrix. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. Um, 
could have been any one of, you know, I, pro I think I learned Purple Haze, Hey Joe, you know, the things that you could sort of play without mm -hmm. having to be a, a real virtuoso. Um, so it was somewhere in there because Hendrix was the thing that really, really, really inspired me to want to do it seriously. Yeah. I remember because it's like, I, I can vividly remember being like 10 and you know, I'd already been playing for four years. I started playing when I was six. But at 10, I remember learning the way B.B. King starts a slow blues and kind of nailing that. And it was like, that's it. I'll do that for the rest of my life. I'm cool, you know? Like, yeah. Where did you hear B.B.? Like, how were you exposed my, to him? My dad. So my parents don't play music, but they love music. And he had an enormous vinyl collection. And sometimes it would be random. They're rock and rollers. So my dad liked the Allman Brothers, the Stones, Hendrix, the Who. My mom liked Bruce Springsteen. She liked Stax and Motown. So we're always listening to great stuff. But B.B. would just be on. He'd put B.B. on. He'd put Albert King on. Um, and I remember vividly. So we had, he had this huge stack of records. So on the bottom row, the records would be by the floor. And we'd gotten a new dog probably when I was eight or nine and the dog started chewing on the records and he would pull them out when we weren't in the house and one day he pulled out uh albert king live wire blues power and ate up the cover and it's still eaten up at my parents house but it was what made me go what's this record dad you know what i mean can we listen to this and next thing you know i'm listening to blues power and it's like that's it's game over you know that's so great that you heard that i didn't hear that you know those records until much later like you know i mean i got a lot of that information initially from listening to jimmy who is yeah. you know to me in that in that continuum uh in yeah. so many ways but you know i heard albert king and i mean i probably heard them but it, i wasn't aware of what i was listening to until quite a bit later you know yeah, I had them all kind of, because of this collection he had, they were all like in the same timeline to me. I would just pull something out and it would be, okay, let's listen to Ari Experience. And then he had like a little jazz section. So I remember vividly pulling out Giant Steps and, and Kind of Blue. And um, uh, he had a Freddie Hubbard record. I can't remember what it was that, that blew my mind. I, I don't remember which album it was. Um, and just just random stuff. I would just pull records out and be like, "Can we? What is this? I want to hear what this is." And they all, you know, you never forget that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, number two. What's the first solo you ever learned note for note? I mean, it was a Hendrix solo, but I can't. <laughs> I really can't remember, Josh. I don't, I don't. It was one of those. I. I mean, I have tapes of me playing when I was like 13, 14, probably about 14. And all I did, was I would just sort of play Hendrix patterns. I had a Strat, an MXR Distortion Plus, <laughs> and a jazz, Roland Jazz Chorus. And wow. I would wheel it around to my friend's houses and we would jam. Uh, and all I did was just play Hendrix type of phrases. So I... Again, I don't, I don't remember. You know, it's a little cloudy what the first thing was. Uh, and I don't even know if I knew what a solo was. You know, it was like I was okay. so oblivious to everything. It was like I just would learn a tune. You know, I wasn't sure, you know, I wasn't clear on what the melody was or what the solo was. I would just play all of it. So 
Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? I don't, it wasn't like, oh, I remember this solo because I said I got to get this solo. I just would play anything I heard. I would just try to learn it. So it was a Hendrix thing, period. Yeah. So as an addendum then, if I ask you to play any Hendrix song right now, you probably, it'd take you one second if you haven't played it in 20 years, but it would come back to you. It's the kind of things you don't ever forget, you know. I, I think, I mean, we're to, those tunes I learned, there are a lot of things that I learned, we're talking about 40 years ago, that I may not remember. I mean, there was some, there's some... It's amazing, though, how, how we keep uh, that stuff. It's amazing how we keep that stuff in here. It's like, I'll, I'll sit down and think about a Stevie Ray bootleg that someone gave me when I was 14, and I'll remember the solo that he played in Italy in 1984 at this gig on this song, and, and it'll come out. Or in uh, Hendrix, it's like, yeah... Most of the songs from those three records, if you asked me to play them right now, they'd all come out pretty close. Yeah, you know what I mean? I yeah. I probably would. I just, it was, it was a really long, and I've, I've since revisited a lot of, because I still play, you know, in, you know, Hendrix has continued to be a huge influence yeah. to me. I mean, in my, my original music, you know, so oh, yeah. I go back and, and learn those things sometimes if I think, man, what is, what was that tune and what's he playing on there? And I'll go learn it. And... Yeah. All right. This is an interesting question because I know my answer. Um, what key style song groove, whatever do you hear in your head when you're walking around? Cause when I'm, I'm my head hits the pillow when I'm scrambling eggs, when I'm walking around, I'm hearing just a shuffle in B-flat normally, and I'm hearing... So what, what do you hear all the time? What's your narration? Oh, man, Josh, I don't know a lot of different <laughs> stuff, man. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it, it's a wide swath of things. I mean, I can, you know, over the last week, I'll have things start to play in my head. I was listening to... a you know, some uh, repeatedly uh, a piece of late Stravinsky um, called uh, Movements for Piano and Orchestra. That's like, you know, when he was writing 12 tone. And I listen to that a lot. And so that plays in my head. Um, so train tunes, you know, Elvin, like Elvin's beat will frequently be playing in my head. Um, that's cool. It really, it depends because my, I guess it's not a, 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 like, hey, look at me. I have so many different influences, but I just listen to so much different music that that soundtrack changes regularly, you know? I hear you. I hear you. Does it, does it ever stop? No, right? No. <laughs> always something. Always something. Uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes like uh, I don't I'm not an obsessive transcriber of solos, but right now that soundtrack is a train solo on this tune of the Miles 50s quintet called Budo. OK, yeah, um, it was from the, the round midnight sessions, I think, that never made it to that record. And I love I've been into that period of early, like 55, 56 train lately. Uh -huh. And uh, I've been transcribing his solo on Budo. So that is just in there, you know, playing on a loop. That's cool, man. <laughs> All right. Number five. 
When did you feel like you started to find your voice on the instrument? When did you know you hit on something that like, hey, this is, this, I should go further down this path. This is like my thing. It's interesting, man. A couple different times, you know, because I've, I've, I don't want to say like I've evolved so much since I started playing, but I've gone through different periods where my, um, my gaze was sort of focused on different aspects of playing. Um, I'd say in the, sometime in the early nineties, um, I got, I, I felt like I started to find something, um, and it was interesting. It was both this period. I remember being very, very helped of one of my dear friends and colleagues, uh, David Binney, you know, mm-hmm. Dave, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. LA, uh, yep. who was from LA originally. Um, when we, we co-led the band Lost Tribe among the other members of the band, other co-leaders and Dave hit me to this Frizzell record um, when we were working on a tune of his at his house, I was playing on a tune and I think Dave gave me a couple of, of kind of almost like production, uh, pieces of advice about what I was, I was probably just blowing my brains out. And Dave was like, well, what if you played a little more sparsely or something? And I, and it, his advice was a kind of affected me and I did it. And I felt like I, I, I discovered something on this particular solo, I remember because I listened to it and I thought, oh, okay. And it, some of it was, I think, a bit based on the influence of a recording that Dave also turned me on to, which was a solo that Frizzell plays on this great record of his called Before We Were Born. Uh-huh. Um, it takes this really overdriven, but really sparse, amazing amazing solo over this like programmed groove with all these weird sounds and joey baron playing that and listening to at that time i was listening a lot to jeff beck's guitar shop i still (laughs) love that record man i mean i was a big jeff beck fan you know from i used to listen to wired all day long okay um and and something about that little period kind of helped me get into to something that I felt was maybe, you know, kind of based on these inspirations, like, I was like, oh, okay, I'm starting to hear something that maybe connected me a little bit more with the vocal quality of the instrument and allowed me to maybe also process the influence I had been dealing with of Train and Bird, you know, which in a way I had been dealing with just like a lot of note, in a lot of notes way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. This period when I started maybe getting back into the sound of the electric guitar, and I was like, oh, okay, that's maybe my way into almost replicating a beautiful saxophone sound. You know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, yeah. And then later, when I started, when I, I got sort of made a switch and started playing more with a semi-hollow or hollow body sound, which, um, you know, I've been playing with a lot because that's where when I started playing jazz that was the sound that I had um there was a period in there like you know where I and I started discovering these sort of polyrhythmic devices that 
started to sort of appear to me from, you know, listening to uh, great drummers and Miles Quintet of the 60s, um, that I started feeling like I was putting something together from these various elements that I felt was maybe something approaching uh, uh, my own voice to the extent yeah. that that. Nice. By the way, you uh, just to say, because we didn't get to it yet, your time is unreal. <laughs> like, your time is unreal. Thank you, Thank you very <laughs> much. I, I don't know if I share that, that feeling, but oh, I man. appreciate it. All right, number six. What's your biggest weakness on the instrument? I know mine, and it's it's playing acoustic guitar on sessions. That's definitely my biggest weakness. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's I'm yours? Sure. Not sure. Um, incredibly fast alternate picking. <laughs> yeah, I can okay. do. On, I can do incredibly fast alternate picking on one string. So, like, <laughs> I, I I remind myself sometimes because, and the only reason I notice this is like sometimes I'll try to transcribe something, you know, like Jimmy Bryant. Yeah. Like from Speedy West and Jimmy Bryant, that Absolutely, kind of thing. And I'm like, man, I can't, you know, I can do my, I can do it. You know, I'm very good at, at like smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Um, but I can't play it just like he plays it, you know, and I'll try. Dude, that and I, that I, stuff's I, hard. <laughs> that stuff so is really hard. hard. It's all hard. It's just that what what pisses me off sometimes is that I can't just change techniques completely. Because <laughs> you know, as mo whatever, like I practice scales and arpeggios, all alternate. You know, I practice things in a lot of different ways. Inevitably, you evolve some a style of playing technically and all kinds of ways that reflects the way you like to hear phrases, you know, and that becomes yep. sort of your thing. And, and that can't necessarily encompass every kind of technique, you know? No, no way. You, no way. way you have to sort of, I mean, a saxophonist that would be like, you know, the most incredible saxophonist in the world, if you ask him to play everything like double tonguing, it wouldn't be able to do it. They have to change their technique completely. And vice yeah. versa, if you said to, you know, an incredible bluegrass flat picker or whatever. Okay, play something like, you know, Holdsworth. Mm -hmm. be completely unfamiliar to them. Um, yeah, exactly. I couldn't play something like Holdsworth. I definitely can't alternate pick like Aldi Miola. But, you know, I, I can play hybrid picking this yeah, or that, and they can't do that. It's, you know, yeah, it is what it is. But I'm always curious, like, what, what people think their weakness is, even if it's not really a weakness. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's an influence, a huge influence on you that me or other people would be surprised to know? Right. Um, uh, I'm trying to come up with one that would be, um, I know you've already, you've already shown a very diverse swath of music, so. Um, uh, uh, Johnny Cash's original guitarist, Luther Johnson, was that his name? Yeah. I love that guy, man. I yeah. love that guy. Every time I listen to, and I have like great press, you know, good, they're really 60s pressings of, of 50s Sun records because LPs weren't really a thing. Yeah. 
But I love those those records and I love the sound of, of Sun Studios. And every single time I hear those things, I go and I'll learn how to play, try to play those, was it Luther Johnson or Luther Perkins? I can't remember. He died I, really I, young, tragically. It's Luther something, not yeah. Luther Tucker. It's no, Luther no, Johnson or Perkins? Because actually, I, man, it might be I just, Perkins. I just got Johnny Cash live at San Quentin, uh-huh. which that has Carl Perkins on it, right? And this other guitarist who took over for Luther Perkins, who died in a fire, really sadly. Um, and I was reminded of it because Carl Perkins and this other dude sound incredible on that record, which is such a great record, like Johnny rapping to the prisoners which he does even uh, more than live at Folsom prison right um, but yeah I just love that and and trying to figure out how to get that you know those those sounds man you know as I know you know Josh you know when you like and especially for people like jazz musicians like myself or you know others you listen to that and you go oh what's and to get that shit just right <laughs> you know that sound and that approach it's like my friend said the other day that's all about who the cat was who was playing it you know like those like they're and i know you know these records this one track that i never stopped listening to backdoor man howlin wolf of course yeah the, the drum groove man you <laughs> that shit is so subtle and so, like, you couldn't write that out. I don't care how many, yep. you know, 128th notes you had to deal with. that. Those little things. So, you know, sometimes I'll hear that and I'll really go in there and try to get, you know, transcribe the sound of a record like that, you know, because it's, it's fascinating to me, you know, those little nuances, man. It, it is fascinating, man, and... Uh, you know his solos on those Johnny Cash records so simple but so directly to the point they so relate to the world that I come from it's like yeah, he right. said he just says you know what he what he needs to say and he's done and it makes yeah. a statement yeah. yeah all right number eight this is a everybody has a different answer to this which is surprising to me would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or a crappy guitar and a great amp Um, probably a great guitar. Okay. And I, I mean, I can't, I don't have a real answer for that because I only have great guitars. No. <laughs> and with a, a, you know, a shitty amp is like the most frustrating thing in the world for me. But that's, that's yeah. why for me, I'd rather have a great amp. And if I'm forced, I'd rather have a great amp and whatever guitar because man well, with, I mean, a, with, yeah. No, 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 go ahead. Sorry. Because with a, with a great guitar and a solid-state crate with digital reverb, I just, man, that's harder for me than the other way around. I don't you know, know why I, it is. but I, I completely hear you, and hearing that particular description of thinking about getting a crate would be horrid. But it some of it depends on the kind of what I'm playing, you know, I mean, in that I play these things that are pretty dichotomous. If I were playing like some jazz, I'd rather have an amp that wasn't, I mean, some jazz, what the hell does that mean? If I were playing my hollow body, my semi hollow body and trying to play the 
kind of fast lines that I play in that style. I don't know if I'd be able to do that with a really shitty guitar. Um, so I could sort of get by with, a, with an amp that didn't sound so good. Almost in that context, when I'm playing my ES-335, I'm, I'm pushing the amp pretty little in those contexts. So I can almost play through a PA. I mean, I hate it, don't get me wrong, or solid state. Right. But you know what I'm saying? Because I'm not pushing the tubes, even if it's a yeah. lousy tube amp, as long as I can get it to be sort of clean, it's sort of a neutral sound. If I'm playing with my Strat or Tele with a really shitty amp, that's really tough because so much of what I get, I don't, you know, I don't use distortion pedals. All the, the overdrive yeah. I get is overdriving amps. That becomes a lot harder. That would force me to use a pedal and you know then you can't get the overdrive pedal and the overdrive from the amp to interact at all so yeah that would be a harder question to answer in that context but i don't know if that's a a good answer or that's a valid answer valid answer valid okay. answer <laughs> all right so you've already shown how motivated a player you are and a learner, student, um, which I hope the people who are watching these videos once I post them and they go by, because I've already done a bunch with a lot of my favorite players, the common thread is, okay, maybe we all, you know, had some divine inspiration. Who, who fucking knows? But we all work really hard because we love it so much, and we still work really hard, um, and that's, that's the main factor. But anyways, what keeps you so motivated? What to keep pushing and pushing your limits and be better tomorrow than today? Well, some of it is, I, I, I feel it's my job. <laughs> I really Dude, feel a hundred percent. It's, it's your, it's what makes you, you, it's your, your responsibility. It's, the, it's what I, yeah. I mean, that's what I, it's, I mean, aside from the fact that it is the only way that I, keep a roof and food over a roof over my head and food in my mouth, which sounds maybe pretty banal, but this is, and also I feel, I feel really, really blessed to have been able to do this with my life, man. I mean, I have made a great living and seen so much of this planet and had incredible experiences improvising on the guitar. That's basically what yeah. I do. You know, yep. sometimes I'm not, but, so I feel really, really lucky and blessed, not to say that there aren't incredible challenges, you know, um, yeah. but I feel an obligation like to myself and almost to the universe to like, I have to go show up for this every day, man. You know, mm -hmm. like it, and now, you know, we don't have any performing opportunities and very little of any kind of opportunities to kind of ply our trade but I feel this is my responsibility to myself and to, I don't know, you know? And, at, at, and also part of it, uh, not to go on and on, I, I have to do it to sort of feel normal. If I don't play, you know, and, and, and do this, it's, I don't wanna say like it's a, it sounds pretentious to say this, but it's almost like, you know, uh, like a, spiritual process for me or something that has nothing to do with anybody checking it out 
You know, <laughs> when, you know, when nobody's looking or listening, I still practice all the time. And I don't want a medal or even a pat on the back for that. That's just yep. what the fuck I'm supposed to be doing until I determine, you know, if next week I go, shit, you know, I'm going to start to study rocket science. Fuck this. <laughs> then, so be it. I don't think that's going to happen. But in the meantime, that's that's what I have to do to sort of feel like I'm the square peg in the square hole. If I don't play or connect with music, I start I sort of feel like a a flower that's not getting water or something, you know? Well, I, I think that's a thing that people don't realize during this pandemic, you know, because people ask me, are you playing? Are you working? I'll say, yeah, yeah, I'm working and producing records, doing some sessions from the house. I'm, I'm practicing. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And they're like, oh, that's good. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't feel like myself at all because, like you said, you've basically improvised for your life, as have I. And... I can count on one hand the amount of times I've played with another musician in the last six months. And this giant chunk of like what makes us us as a person, and I, maybe that's sad or not, I don't know. I mean, I've got my family and I've got that side of me too, but a huge portion of what makes me me as a person is gone right now. So I don't think people can relate to that. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It's funny, man. I didn't, I don't know if I just have a sort of myopic view of stuff, but from the beginning of, of this whole experience that we've had as a species, you know, and thinking about that, I was like, man, wouldn't it be great if this just united the hell out of all of us like it should be doing, right? Like oh, we yes. as a species are facing this other life form that is trying to get into us and mess us up. Like, Let's all get together on this. You know, what a perfect, like, if, yeah, if it was like it, a movie, if it was like those exactly. movies where the asteroid was coming down right. to destroy Earth, every nation would be teaming up to destroy the asteroid and sending Ben Affleck out to space right now. I don't you know? know when, what's going to have to happen to kind of make it like, you know, whatever that movie was called, Asteroids or Ben Affleck's <laughs> part four. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have just been doing what I have to do, practicing a lot, working on music, recording, trying to write. Um, the couple of times that I have gotten together and played with people afterwards, I'm just like, oh, my God, do I miss doing that? Like, you know, when I immediately experience that the thing that you get that you just can't really get from practicing, right? It's like you got to practice, but you have to. You know, I mean, I'm talking about like the learning things that you, oh, that's what, ha you know, all that shit that you put together on the gig yeah. that you don't if you're not performing or playing with other people. When I've had those experiences, it's made me aware of like, wow, this is really, you know, I miss this yeah. greatly. But, you know, for me, I can say that it's, I think it's made me appreciate that a lot more than I had before because I've never probably, well, none of us in our lives have been forced to deal yep. with a situation like this. So I, I think I take those experiences. I hope moving forward that I will continue to take those experiences, um, be more, even more grateful for those experiences maybe than I had before this challenge that we've faced. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you. All right. Last question. And it's a, cliche one but uh 
where do you want to be in five years as a musician or a guitar player? What's what's next on your horizon for like, man, I want to be doing this or being be this or whatever. I don't know, man. I don't have. I'm. I probably should have been or should be, but I'm not super clear sort of goal oriented. I just want to keep developing, you know, keep writing and playing music and, and, uh, and developing, you know, and I guess, I mean, I, I'd like my development to have been quicker or faster and more magnificent than it has been up until this point, but I'm at where I'm at. So all I can hope for is to sort of continue along this process and, and continually learn new things, which if I, if I, try to every day i can i can learn a whole bunch of new things you know i can well, that's I mean, a great it's, thing it's never ending that's yeah incredible and i've been doing this almost you know aside from probably a few weeks or maybe a month or two in the last 40 years like i've been doing this every single day yeah. and i can still figure out with not a tremendous amount of work I can still find some shit that I've never done before. You know, it's amazing. It's a never ending instrument, you know, and that it's what makes it so inspiring. It was funny. I was watching baseball last. I'm a huge baseball fan and I was watching with my son and the Yankees hit six home runs last night and they hit seven the night before and six the night before. And they hit five in an inning last night, which had never, never happened. And I said, isn't it amazing that in a game that's a hundred plus years old, that we watch all the time and still see things happen that never have happened before. And it was, yeah. I immediately thought about my relationship to this instrument and how every day I hear something that's like, fuck, I never thought of that ever, you know? Yeah. yeah. And we have these, all of these different versions of the same instrument too. So it's like, if you ever are finding yourself sort of at the, the perceived end of a hallway in one style of music, you could just, go over and learn something else, you know? And it's like, yep. I, I love that about this instrument, you know, all the yeah. different ways that it it's is. It's amazing. Sonically. Oh, dude, thank you. Well, anyways, for uh, the members, we're going to do a little, little short bonus video called Turn 2, where we just play two licks and show you two things. But, Adam, man, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I, like I said, I didn't, no hyperbole. <laughs> you really are one of my most favorite musicians in the world. And it's an honor just to pick your brain for a while and hang out. And I hope soon when the world gets back to normal, we can hang and play a little bit. I would love that, man. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. You got it, man.